0: Galatians chapter 5. And this morning we we will be talking about the fruit of the Spirit, sort of wrapping up this section in chapter 5 by talking about the importance of walking in the Spirit. And though it might not initially seem important, understanding who Christ church is actually does have eternal consequences. And sadly, there are many people who sincerely believe themselves to be Christians because they regularly regularly go to church or because they're members of their local church. But there are two tragic errors that people make in relationship to this connection between Christ and his church. The first one is that a person can belong to Christ and not belong to his church. The error is that a person can belong to Christ and yet not belong to his church. The second one is that a person can belong to Christ's church and not belong to him. They can belong to Christ's church and yet not belong to him. And a major reason for this confusion is simply that we j- uh, normally jettison our doctrine, especially when there's overlapping doctrines of soteriology, which is the study of salvation. Uh, um, Ecclesiology, which is the study of the church, and eschatology, which is the study of end times. And most people affiliate these things with the church as they ought to. But there's three things that they don't understand. They have no idea what it actually means to be saved, the second is uh, what it means for those who are saved to belong to the church. And the third thing is the church's role in God's redemptive purpose. If you're honest, most people outside the church simply think that the people in the church are a bunch of nice religious people who get together on Sundays and talk about the Bible. Unfortunately, the reason that they think this is because this is the message that most people in the church convey to them. But why is this eternally dangerous? Because it preaches the false gospel that we can be okay with God apart from being born again and subsequently united to Christ through this supernatural gift of saving faith in the gospel. We need to realize that by nature all humans, including our our children and well meaning friends, as sinners, they're hardwired legalists. And therefore they we need to be intentional in communicating the message of regenerative membership. Regenerative membership, especially to those who regularly attend our church services. Because if we're not careful, those who attend church, especially our children, will inevitably begin to think that they are Christians because they've always been to church, even though they've never been in Christ. They've been in the building, but they've never really been in Christ. Shortly after apostolic days, some began to transform faith into something that it was not. Rather than faith remaining in effect of the fruit of life, it was, called, it was made the cause of life. The error has led to one of the greatest practical and doctrinal divisions in all Christendom. The true grace of God is diminished, if not completely destroyed in some circumstances because of this change. By keeping the Word of God, we avoid these man-made perversions. We're able to remain in truth because there's a humanistic attempt to transform faith into something that it never was and usurp all the glory that is due a thrice holy God. To usurp God's plan of salvation for the sinner. This perversion of faith renders the omnipotent God absolutely impotent. He's impotent to do anything for the sinner until the sinner, he or she, goes and believes instead of they believe because he has done a work in them first. A dead man cannot answer. A dead man cannot say yes or no. And we see, see this with Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. What had happened first? He needed to be made alive. And then he heard the voice of his Savior and responded. You see, being born again precedes the the recognition of a sinner that needs the grace of God. Otherwise, it'd be a man-made work. Otherwise, it would be us being smart enough, being wise enough. It would be a work of man, not God. And so God opens our eyes, opens our ears, that we may be healed. And so, we end up seeing that man isn't the greatest actor in our salvation. It's God. This kind of faith that says Christ really didn't come to give a ransom for anyone, That it's by the choice of the sinner? No. Christ died on the cross for sinners. Effective, effectually. Meaning it had an effect. He didn't die on the cross and then go, I just hope that someone comes to me. I just hope that someone receives me. Otherwise what I did was in vain. No. Your names were all written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, and He came to redeem you. How glorious is that? I cannot, I am shaken right now because I can barely stand the fact that He did that for me. And you should be shaken as well, understanding what He has done for you. We need to realize that the other, where it's based on man, there are all kinds of antichrists that are in this world that have preached. It's all based on you, and that's horrible. It pulls away from from the work of the Lord. It pulls away from the sovereignty of a God who ended up setting his mind upon those whom he calls by name to redeem. My sheep hear my voice. And just so you're not mistaken, he doesn't change you from a goat to a sheep. He changes you from a sheep outside the fold to a sheep that he calls and then is in his fold. So before we go and dive into this too much more, let's go ahead and go to Scripture. Let's turn to chapter 5 of Galatians. And our text for this morning is actually going to be in verses 24 through 26. But let's start in verse 16. And I hope you've caught the reason why we're doing this. There is a portion It talks about what we were before salvation and then what we are after. And it is blessed hope. And I hope you see the reason why week after week after week I've gone back to verse 16. So starting with verse 16, it says, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the lust... Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murderers, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the change. But... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Do you see that? There's a crucifixion of the flesh, what we used to be. We have put to death. And so it says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Godly zeal may not be one of the fruits of the Spirit listed here, but it's a necessary grace in the life of a Christian. Otherwise, we will find ourselves left alone, drifting like We'll just drift along like we're in a sea of lukewarmness, in a sea of apathy and indifference to the Lord and His glorious kingdom. When Jesus, at the beginning of His public ministry, as you would see in John chapter 2, He drove out the buyers and sellers of sacrificial sacrificial animals out of the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers, and then He chased them out. The Lord Jesus justified his actions by quoting the mess- messianic prophecy found in Psalm 69.9. The zeal of thy house has eaten me up. In other words, it's consumed him. And though we're not called to imitate precisely every activity Jesus did in fulfilling of pro- Of prophecy we are to press forward in being conformed to his image in the spiritual graces which he possesses godly zeal was eminently present in the life and character of the lord jesus christ and was manifested in the cleansing of the temple not only once but twice And those who have been redeemed by grace of the Lord Jesus Christ are people who, as Titus 2.14 says, uh, are zealous of good works. The Lord Jesus leaves believers with no option in this matter. He commands us in Revelation 3.19, be zealous. The root word there is zeal, and it means to boil. To boil. Be zealous. Godly zeal, you see, is a fervent and earnest desire and passion for Christ as opposed to lukewarmness, apathy. Godly zeal is not mere, a mere profession of faith and a dead orthodoxy or a mere formal rela- uh, formal relationship Instead, it's a living and growing relationship with the crucified and risen Savior. And that can only live and grow daily as we spend time with Christ, being humbled in the awe and wonder of His power and His love and His holiness. When the Lord and His truth are despised or reviled by the world, does your heart, burn in love and devotion to Christ? Or are you only some smoldering embers of a fire that once burned fervently in your life? I know there's sometimes when there's new believers and they are on fire. I was, Vicky was. I can tell you, there that happens. You... You are converted. You are born again. And the first thing you want to do is scream out. And the shame of it all is when older Christians say, well, you you get over it. It's just a phase. Really? Really? If that's what we think, today is the day to repent of our lukewarmness. Renew that first love that you had for Christ and to be consumed with a holy zeal for the Lord, and to walk in the Spirit. You see, after listing the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23 of our text, at the end of 23 it says, against such there is no law. Well, what does that mean? What are the implications of those who believe? Well, I think that the way this phrase should be understood is if I can personify the law of God in regard to the statement, would be this. It's that the law of God can find nothing wrong with the fruit of the Spirit displayed by believers. Indeed, a matter of fact, it finds everything that is right in the Christians bringing forth these graces and good attitudes in their words and actions. The bringing forth of the fruit of the Spirit by the believer is pleasing to God himself in every way in relation to the believer's going about and to do and keep commandments of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this isn't the way we gain our salvation or secure our salvation by obeying the law. Because even if we were able to keep the commandments of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're still not able to to obey them perfectly. And that's what the law requires. You want to know the good news? The Lord Jesus Christ did that on our behalf. He kept them perfectly. And so we find that it's by these graces of the Spirit that every Christian is led into greater obedience to the two greatest commandments, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I love what William Perkins says on this. He says there is no law to compel them to obey because they freely obey as if there were no law. You do that to people you love, to to things you love. Does anyone tell you to love your children? Let me ask you this. Do you ever get tired of kissing on them? Do you ever sit there and go, yeah, well, you know, I kissed them the last half hour. I'm not going to... not you smooch all over them. You smother them. Isn't that... That's the love. That's because you desire. No one has to tell you to do that. And that's where... Where, like Perkins says, there is no law to compel them to obey. Because they freely obey as if there is no law. And so, I want to move on to verse 24 here. And it says, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does this mean? Well, from the way that that verse is worded in the Greek we see the Greek word, and it's the, the word crucifying. And I, I just want to mention this. I, I'm not trying to teach you Greek. If you, if you sit there and you go, well, I'm going to, because I learn as I, as I go too. But what I want you to do is, is to be able to see that Greek word and then some other time you go, oh, I heard that before. I heard that word. How is it used in that context? And so that's to help us grow. You know, there's there's a um, a, a, a section in Romans three. It says that uh, that grace is a free gift of God, and the free gift is the word Greek word doria. And then it's used where it says that there was no reason for people to, uh, to hate Christ. They did it without cause. Those words, guess what word? Doria. There was no reason for God to show you grace just as there was no reason for them to hate Christ. It was without cause. It wasn't because of what God saw you might do in your life once you were saved. It's in spite of that. He loved you without a cause, just as they hated Christ without a cause. That's the reason I get into the Greek, so you can see those things. But crucifying the flesh that stay first of all, it's something that a person deliberately does at the time of their conversion to Christ. It's a deliberate act of a believer which is related to their faith in Christ. And their intention is to fully repent of all their sins. Remember when you were first saved? Going through that list? Oh, I hope I didn't forget any you know what, that's not for God's benefit, that's for our benefit. We don't list off all those sins for God's benefit. He knows. We lift, off, uh, we lift up those sins to go, oh my goodness, and I did this and this. You see the grace greater when you see those sins. But secondly, the crucifixion of the flesh is something that Christians should be engaging every, every day by the, the Spirit's power. Jesus did not simply come to earth to abstain from worldly pleasures and sin because that would not have secured our salvation. Our simply abstaining and denying ourselves is not what the crucified life is about. Our simple forcing ourselves not to do the things that we really want to do is not the heart of a crucified life. Purposely making our life miserable by suffering from unfulfilled desires and loneliness is not what the cross of Christ is about. No one finds the true crucified life when they go no further than just self-denial. Most people never find the crucified life is really about because they're instructed to just have self-denial and then they are just left there. Just deny yourself and that's it. No, you won't find it that way. So let's think about these truths and realities for just a moment as we attempt to come to term with this. This crucified life is a deliberate act of the believer at the time of conversion, which is related to their faith in Christ. Their declared intention is to fully repent of their sins. In their own heart and mind, they crucify the flesh. It is something that they are led to do because they have been effectually called. Remember, effectual? Effectual? That means that there's an effect to what has happened to you. They're effectually called by God to place their faith in Christ. And they have been given a new heart, and so they want to crucify their flesh. If you would please turn to Romans chapter 6. We'll look at verses 1 through 14. Romans chapter 6, starting with verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. That word is Gehinnomai. It means God forbid. It's the strongest Greek word in the negative. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. You get that? For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Here's where the connector is. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion, that word dominion, over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Now we need to understand that our crucifying the flesh is not something we do on our own part apart from the grace of Christ. The baptism that's being talked about here is not water baptism. Rather, it's the Spirit's working, baptizing us spiritually into Christ's death. His death to sin is made effectual to our death to sin in our hearts and minds. The Spirit unites us with Christ, baptizing us into His death so that each and every true Christian experience experiences a real death to sin in their nature. Now, that's not that sin is eradicated from our being. But the heart of a believer in Christ is changed, whereby the dominion of sin is taken away the old man is then crucified with Christ in conversion in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that no, we are no longer slaves to sin. The power of sin to rule over the life of one who is believing in Jesus has been taken away by the working of the Holy Spirit. The body of of sins of the flesh are put off and the person believing in Christ is raised from the dead spiritually to a new life so what is the flesh it is the corruption of the old nature that every single person has because of our relationship to the first father adam because he was our first the first Man that was created. He is our federal head. Remember that from last week? He is our representative head. The head of the whole human race. When he fell, we fell. And that's the sin nature of man. It's committed by every single one of his descendants. Our sinful hearts put forth motions to think that think things and do things that are contrary to God's holy word and his commandments we're led astray from the truth of God's word and from the righteousness when we entertain these feelings and thoughts of the corrupt nature and then we go act upon them we think about them And in word and deed, we commission the sin to do its ugly work. And so a sinful person receives Christ by believing in the gospel, that Christ died for their sins, was raised on the third day for their justification, and thereby forgiven all their sins, and the righteousness of Christ is then imputed to their legal account. That word imputed is very important. It's what's accredited to you. My son Tyler is buying a house. And when he signs those papers, everyone that goes past will say, well, that's Tyler's house. It's accredited to him. Guess what? He probably owns about about that much of the house. The bank actually owns it, right? But it's imputed. It's accredited to him. You see, the righteousness of Christ is accredited to our account. And so now we have the power to repent of our sin. We have in our heart and mind the ability to deliberately align ourselves with the purpose and intent of Christ's death and resurrection. We now crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. We deliberately, as a deliberate act, turn away from the pursuit of all known sin and worldliness. I like what Charles uh, Simon says in his commentary. It's an older commentary, so the, the words are, More old English, but he says crucifixion, it must be remembered, is a lingering death. The thieves who were crucified with Christ poured forth their venom against him, even whilst they were suspended on the cross. Thus also the old man in believers is crucified with Christ that the body of sin may be destroyed that henceforth they should not serve sin. Nevertheless, it is utterly extinct. It still lives, or it is not utterly extinct, it still lives, and still rages and rebels against Christ, and would, if suffered suffered to come down from the cross, regain its former ascendancy. But there's but there it is fixed. And hence it shall never come down till the body itself ceases to live. All its affections and all its desires, though still possessed of considerable strength, are checked in their operation and the the restraint in their exercise. The spirit now reigns. The new affections now put forth a vigor which the flesh can no longer withstand the warfare is indeed continued, but the victory declares itself on the other side of better principle. So that whereas the believer formerly walked after the flesh, he now daily, his daily life and conversion, walks after the Spirit and progressively advances in his heavenly course as long as he continues in this world. Quote. We should also understand that this phrase that is also imitating a process of mortification of sin that happens at sin is the indwelling, remaining process of sin that has to constantly be put to death. And that's a part of our sanctification process. Sanctification isn't becoming, you weren't saved and immediately you are sinless. Even though God has justified you and He sees you as sinless, You are not sinless, but he sees you as sinless. And so we work with that. We work on that. It's an ongoing process. And continuing in verse 25, we read, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And this includes the exhortation. if you just cut off the recording for a second. Here we go. We're on again. And so verse twenty five it says if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit, and so twenty five has the exhortation which assumes a particular condition. You see that uh, conditional conjunction there if if we walk in the spirit, here true salvation is assumed because every true believer lives. In the Spirit. Paul is assuming that this exhortation is applicable to every true Christian, but only to Christians. Romans 8 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God indwells you. There's the same condition. Now, if... Anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. It explains it. Since this is the case with every believer, we are exhorted to walk in the Spirit. The exhortation was basically the same command that we saw in verse 16. It says, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And although the word walk there is different in verse 16 as it is in verse 25, the command is similar. The, the word in, in verse 16 is peripateo, which means to make one's way, to progress along, to regulate one's life. Now, in verse 25, it gets a little bit more defined. It's the Greek word stekao. And it's more of a military word. It means to proceed in a row as a soldier marching in order. It means to direct one's life. And so to walk in the Spirit means to conduct ourselves in the relation with the Spirit. This is the way that we maintain and deepen our relationship with the Holy Spirit. The way which we conduct ourselves, the way we maintain ourselves, deepens our relationship. And there's five different ways that I mention here. The first way is by praying earnestly for greater measures of the Spirit's influence. Pray earnestly for greater measure of the Spirit's influence on your life. The second has something to do with the first. Listen to the voice of the Spirit by the Word of God, by the conscience and gathering of the church. The first one is the greatest important. Listen to the voice of the Spirit by the Word of God. If you end up having anything that you say, well, the Spirit was talking to me today, and it goes against Scripture, it wasn't the Spirit of God. John fourteen twenty six says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and here's the point, And bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Where does he bring remembrance from? From his word. The Holy Spirit always speaks through his word. And then with the conscience, the conscience, you go, oh yeah, with the word, brings to remembrance, and then your conscience is able to uh, listen to the voice of the Spirit. Within the gathering of the church, you go, oh yeah, I heard this. Remembers brings to remembrance. You can't remember anything that you don't know. That's why it's so important that we know the Word of God. That's why it's so important that we don't just come in. I just recently heard someone say, you know what, we got a new pastor and he better stay to that 15-minute sermon. Wow, what do you think these people are hearing and listening? They're not probably even hearing the the Word of God um, uh, through expository preaching. It's not expounded on. It's just, let's say these things, let's, you know, it's all good. We need to learn. I can't tell you. We need to learn the Word of God. So that we have the ability to bring to remembrance what it says. So that guides our life. And then we need to, thirdly, cultivate an attitude of conscious dependence on the Spirit. Cultivate an attitude of conscious dependence on the Spirit. Fourthly, exercise faith in the Spirit. Sometimes it's hard to go out. Sometimes it's it's hard to hold to the Word of God. But when the Spirit of God works upon the conscience and says, you know what? Here's what you need to do. To have that faith, exercise that faith that the Spirit of God is true. When He calls you to do something and it's, in accordance with the Word of God, then do it. Exercise that faith. I've told you many times, this is the last place I'd want to be. It's not patting myself on the back, let me tell you that. This is difficult. It doesn't matter how many times I get up here. This is difficult, but the passion to follow what the Spirit of God has put before me, the calling to be a pastor, the calling to preach... The calling to talk to people about Christ when I know that maybe they have just a foul mouth and I go, that's okay. So did I before I was saved too. Before I heard the word of God and I'm just going to be patient, follow his leading. And then fifthly, discovering, developing and exercising our spiritual gifts. Making sure that we just don't go, oh, you know what, here we are in church. We, oh, I learned a whole lot, now I'm just going to sit on it. You need to discover, exercise, uh, and develop your spiritual gifts. You need to move upon them, in other words. Walking in the Spirit and conducting ourselves in a way that maintains and deepens our relationship with with the Spirit if we do that, it'll enable us to maintain that initial repentance that I talked about. You know, when you just go, oh man, I I need to do that. It'll also help us to uh, 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 enable us to have this separation from the works of the flesh. You know, to not be part of that first list. At least not more often than the second. We need to to walk in the spirit. And we need to initiate a definite separation from the works of the flesh from the works of the spirit. We can't sit there and mold them together and say, Well, you know, I walk in the spirit. There needs to be ongoing maintenance of, of division and separation from the flesh. Walking in the Spirit is a way to maintain this separation. When a church member is walking in the Spirit, not fulfilling the the desires of the flesh, you know what happens? You know what happens? There's a potential for us to have this little colony of heaven here on earth, of of being with brothers and sisters that we know we're going to spend eternity with and boy we're not we're not perfect by any means and we won't be until we get to heaven but can you imagine that sitting there going i'm spending time bound together by the spirit of god with each one of you and you with me and you together with each other that's what this should be And so, in verse 26 of our text, it tells us how that can be. It says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The warning here is that we can lose our sub, our separation from the works of the flesh and we can fall back into conceit, which would be pride. We... We can be proactive in our behavior toward our brethren, thinking about the eternity that we'll spend together. And then it says we're not going to end up provoking one another or envying one another. This is a possibility. If we don't maintain our work of the flesh, but we maintain our walking in the Spirit, this is a possibility that we won't do those things. And we won't have this tendency to fall back into the works of the flesh. Instead, we will manifest the fruit of the Spirit, we'll cultivate the fruit of the Spirit the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit are exclusive from each other. If you're exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, you will not manifest the fruit of the flesh. This verse gives us a picture of what disrupts true fellowship. Because the church is is made up of people who are Struggling with sin. I struggle with sin. You struggle with sin. We read in First John, if you say that you don't, you're a liar. But struggling together. Charging each other to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. The church is made up of those people that struggle and when a person, or maybe many people, are not walking in the spirit, it's typically for one reason. It's the word "conceited." "Kenodoxos" is the Greek. Do you know what it means? to desire glory, glory without reason, eager for empty glory. Conceit and feelings of inferiority have the same root. They both manifest a self-focus. Both conceit and feelings of inferiority focus on how others make you feel. True Christian fellowship, on the other hand, is focused on others. And for the most part, modern Christianity has missed that almost entirely. You know, sadly, sometimes Christians are the world's best example of unforgiveness. Doesn't even require sinning against each other to make them part companies and hate each other. Sometimes all it takes is that you don't agree on something. At times all it takes is you don't, they don't receive the attention that they think they deserve from someone. Modern Christians are vengeful and hateful over sometimes the smallest differences. And Much of the time this is the perception that the world has of the church. They all have different sets of standards of right and wrong and they follow these rules. They avoid doing things that are forgiven. Or things that are forbidden, I mean. It's not the crucified life. Because these same people, when confronted with someone who does terrible wrong, they're heartless. They're vengeful. I like, actually, more than like, the 19th century Scottish preacher, Robbie Merck. Robert Murray McShane said it should actually be the opposite. The Christian is a person who makes it easy for others to believe in God. The Christian is a person who makes it easy for others to believe in God. We should be like Jesus in our forgiveness and willingness to bear the shame and pain for someone else. How will others ever see Jesus if Christians are not like Jesus? To be crucified means to put to death. Therefore, if we are not crucified with Christ, we will. We do not, if we are crucified with Christ, we do not consider our own life because it doesn't matter anymore. We deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow. It doesn't matter. And then verse 26 of our text, we see the word translated provoking. It's the word prokoleomai, which means to challenge someone. Actually, the NASB says challenging one another. Always be challenging. Always having this attitude of a challenge. And then we see the word envy, which is wanting something that rightfully belongs to someone else. Or it could be just not wanting someone else to have it. Provoking an envy are just another form. They're the same form of uh, conceit. Conceited. One commentator gives this inc- incredible insight on this verse. He says, "So both the superiority the superiority complex and the inferiority complex are at at root born of insecurity and inferior, inferiority. They are just two different outworkings of our desire to gain glory for ourselves, to to feel while." Um, worthwhile as people. They are just two different outworkings of our desire to gain glory for ourselves, to feel worthwhile as people. So what verse 26 is basically saying, do not let your hunger for honor make you either despise or envy people. To summarize, the barrier to gospel fellowship is self-focus. And that always has its roots in walking in the flesh. When the Holy Spirit fills our lives, we are neither conceited nor do we feel inferior. Walking in step with the Holy Spirit makes us bold yet humble. I hope you see that all of Paul's epistle in Galatians is a defense of Christian liberty. But liberty is the necessary corollary to doctrine of justification by faith, which the very heart is the very heart of the gospel. That doctrine, you see, was under attack by people in Galatia who were very determined false teachers, And Paul was waging war against their legalism. So a very powerful affirmation of Christian liberty runs all the way through the book of Galatians. Both the gospel and the law emphatically agree about one vital truth. Salvation is not something any sinner could ever deserve. You cannot earn a place in heaven by any amount of good works, legal obedience, righteous religious ceremony, or works of charity. Our attempt to earn God's favor is useless because at the very best, and the best things we can do are flawed and worthless in the eyes of a perfectly holy God. Everything we do is tainted with guilt because we're sinners. We can't meet that perfect perfectionist, uh, standard of perfection that God requires. Even the very best deeds we do are corrupt with wrong motives, pride, selfish, self-righteousness. No matter who you are, Scripture says at your very best, you're still a sinner who falls short of the glory of God. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We are all as unclean, an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. Romans three ten says, As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. God's righteousness is so much higher than ours, that by doing our own good works and the efforts that we have to self-reform, we could never rise to a, uh, any higher than a fallen and condemned position. Because God's standard is very clear. Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That righteousness is required to enter the kingdom of heaven, and that is only found in Jesus Christ himself. We do have liberty as Christians, but I'm always concerned when I see Christians flaunting this liberty, as if that was the best testimony that you have before a world, a watching world. Look at me. You know what? We've got to stop being self-focused. It's not watch me. You watch me, but I pray you see Christ. We must consider our liberty as something precious to us. So often I don't think we do. Remember that command in Galatians 5 that we must carefully guard our liberty against all threats. Our liberty is not given to us for fleshly gratification. Along with our Liberty in Christ comes a responsibility to use it in a discerning way for the good of others and for the growth of the gospel and for the glory of God. We need to do that. We need to live our life so people don't see Brendan Ganser. They see Jesus Christ living in a sinner, saved by the grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that what's been spoken here this morning is according to your word and by the leading of the Holy Spirit. I pray, O Lord, that you would burn these truths into our hearts and not let us forget them while we're walking by the wayside, when we're working, when we're driving, that these things would come to our mind, that you would bring to remembrance the things that you have taught us in your word, and so that we would think about them, Lord, that is what you would have us to be, that we would walk in the Spirit and bear the fruit of the Spirit and be led by the Spirit and not produce works of the flesh, but works of the Spirit. For it's in Christ Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.